This is Marco Reus. This is Shinji Kagawa. This is Nuri Shahin. Hello, this is Jaden Sancho. And you're listening to the Yellow Wall Podcast. Welcome to episode 361 of the Yellow Wall Pod. I'm your host Stefan Wutzko and today we will talk about Borussia Dortmund's two-all draw against TSG Hoffenheim and we will preview tomorrow's USL tie against Sevilla, including the interview with Between the Posts, Jose Perez. For that and more, joins me Matthias Zuck. Hello Matthias, I'm glad you are here finally uh, after uh, I let you skip on the... Uh, Marco Rose emergency podcast, but I'm sure uh, I'm still going to hear your opinion about that move. Uh, three podcasts this week. It's going to be busy with the uh, Derby preview and everything, but uh, yeah, how are you doing? I am doing significantly better after yesterday. Um, and no, overall, I'm doing well. How are you? I'm, I'm very good. Uh, we have a sponsor for this episode. Wir sind komplett schuldenfrei. Wir zahlen keinen einzigen Euro an Zinsen. And this episode is sponsored by Cheez-Its. Uh, <laughs> not officially, obviously. We're not getting any money. But uh, I've got a whole uh, jar of Cheez-Its right in front of me. And I'm going to munch. So if you hear any background noise, uh, just that's basically me trying to do a disclaimer. But if uh, anyone real wants to sponsor an episode, please go to patreon.com slash thejellowwolf for more information. Or just hit me up on Twitter or Drop us an email at uh, yellowwallpod at gmail.com. Now, Matthias, um, I hope uh, your brain cells and synapses are still working because Borussia Dortmund famously again uh, failed to win against TSG Hoffenheim. A 2-2 draw in the end, which does not help uh, Dortmund really to regain ground in the fight for the Champions League spots. However, since uh, Wolfsburg and Gladbach also drew 0-0, um, it was not that harmful. But Matthias, uh, other than that game, as you just said before we started recording, being forgettable, uh, <laughs> what did you take away from it? Well, that no matter what and no matter in, in what constellation in the table one finds oneself... Dortmund beating Hoffenheim is just never going to happen, Stefan. I think we need to accept that, that um, <laughs> ever since the year where Borussia Dortmund could have sent TSG Hoffenheim into the Zweite Liga and failed to do so on the last match day, uh, it's just not been good. I mean, it's better than the last match, well, no, the second to last match against Hoffenheim, even though the last match was pretty bad too because Dortmund had a 3-0 lead and somehow managed to not win that game. Um, it it's, oh God, you know, it's one of those games where the end result, the two all is probably just, you know, if you look at it overall over the whole 90 minutes, neither team really played overly well. Uh, Hoffenheim may have edged it in some clear cut chances, but Dortmund also had a few, it's just, it was just a meh game on a meh match day. Um, I think Leverkusen also drew. The the winners of the match day were clearly Frankfurt and Leipzig. Unfortunately for Leipzig, Frankfurt I'm fine with. Um, but yeah, it's just forgettable, forgettable performance, disjointed performance from both teams. It just was very sloppy. Um, and yeah, it was under. I can't even say underwhelming. It was it was just so meh. Uh, that's probably <laughs> that should be the headline. Just so meh. Well, um, I mean, it was. <sighs> I don't even want to say interesting, but uh, it was fascinating how crappy Dortmund can be in defense and how very little, uh, very little trying was going on on Hoffenheim's side in order to unlock Dortmund's defense. Let's put it this way, because. Uh, like I said, I did watch Hoffenheim against Frankfurt and Hoffenheim 
apart from 10 minutes after halftime against Frankfurt, really did struggle to create any meaningful chances against uh, the Eagles. And uh, against Dortmund, it looked way easier. And the the thing is, they did not have uh, Andre Kramaric, who obviously is their most prolific goal scorer. But, um, you know, I think uh, the first chance that Bibu had, and I think he had like three clear-cut chances, which uh, hit saved. And uh, obviously, in the end, uh, he he did he did score one. Um, but uh, I mean, I think like th- there was a long ball uh, where Akanji had a weird clearance, and then uh, there was another long ball where um, I think it was Dabur who just headed it back to to a midfielder, and uh, that uh, created a good chance and really highlighted um, how uh, when Dortmund press high or try to play up front that the back line doesn't move up quick enough because if there's such a wide gap between your last line and uh, your uh, central midfielders uh, that the opposing striker can head the ball backward to a, to his midfielder and that's like a 20 meter ball then uh, you're doing something very poorly because this sort of gap should never be there um and if you lose shape like that even a side like Hoffenheim uh, are going to punish you because I think Ilhas Bebu is a really good player and uh, he's probably too good for this Hoffenheim team if we were uh, honest and uh, if you give him the space and the time uh, he will absolutely punish you well actually not uh, let me rephrase that because he didn't absolutely punish Dortmund uh, with all the chances he had um but you know uh it's uh, I think in the end was a bit of a let off for Dortmund. Uh, I mean, two two was a not even fair result. I think Hoffenheim arguably should have won it. Uh, they have two point six expected goals uh, versus Dortmund's one point seven. I know the statistic is always more of an indicator than anything else, but um, just uh, watching the highlights again, I think it occurred to me that uh, very much Hoffenheim should have um, yeah probably nicked it. Um, but all that being said, Matthias, there was obviously uh, one controversial moment, at least, uh, and that was right before Hoffenheim scored the equalizer, uh, because Jane Sancho in the 24th minute scored a very beautiful uh, opener with an assist of Rafael Guerrero, but then uh, six minutes later or so, uh, Dortmund broke through, broke through again with Bellingham, and... Uh, to his right was uh, Erling Haaland and he was clearly and obviously wrestled to the ground uh, by Kevin Vogt. And the problem, Matthias, is Sebastian Danka, the referee, had the perfect view because he was just like 5 meters, 10 meters or so, standing behind it and he just waved it away. And for the life of me, I don't understand why he didn't see that. That's uh, a very obvious foul. Now, a lot of people were complaining about VAR, um, but the issue is in this situation... Uh, VAR can take a look at it because A, the foul occurred outside of the box and B, uh, the uh, Hoffenheim goal that sort of ensued after it uh, was not sort of a direct counterattack because Hoffenheim did circulate position a little bit and uh, so no chance for the VAR to look at that particular moment. So Matthias, um, obviously uh, that's very disappointing that Sebastian Dankert really screwed the pooch there um anything you want to say about the situation i think it's very clear and obvious that Dortmund were robbed of an excellent goal yeah. opportunity but uh yeah and in the end you just also can't concede the goal that Dortmund did at the other end emre Can doesn't need to put uh dabur on site etc etc yeah it's it's one of those um obviously it was a clear foul i mean there's no no doubt about it and the thing about it is if a player has a reputation for, call it embellishing fouls, uh, referees are more inclined to ignore it. Holland isn't that guy. Holland wants to score a goal. He doesn't want to get a free kick. That's not a goal because uh, he's not the one taking the free kicks. Yeah, he's not and like Busquets who just falls no. down and then or like screams. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, where, 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 you know, you can see the birds flying away uh, two kilometers far from the stadium because they, they are just shrieking so loudly, trying to, to you know, simulate being fouled or something like that. So, um, yeah, Haaland no, really I mean, is not that guy. No, he doesn't have that reputation. And so um, the referee who, like you said, was in a perfect position 
not just close to it, but perfectly positioned to see it. You know, he wasn't, if he was behind the player's back, then he couldn't have really seen it as well, but he was positioned in a way that he could have. Um, huge mistake. Now, the VIR thing. Uh, and and I understand, you know, okay, they can't review it because it wasn't in the in the box. Fine, that's cool. Um, the Hoffenheim goal did result through that because there was, if I remember correctly, there was no, like, break and play. There wasn't, the ball didn't go out or anything like that, correct? It was... A continuous move from there. Yeah, but how um, how Colinas Erben at least explained it is that uh, yeah. they recycle possession, so they they played it back to the keeper and so. So basically, yeah. if if it's it's a bit like you know when when you're running back in the NFL and uh, the referees blow the whistle because pro uh, a progression is stopped. This is a bit like like that. You know, you you can you can argue about it, but uh, you know there's sort of a. a a window of uh, where it can happen, but uh, Hoffenheim just took too long. Obviously, uh, you know, was it, what, 20 seconds, maybe 25 or so? I don't know. It still feels uh, very unfair, but, uh, you know, just from a clinically and technical standpoint, I think I, I can see the argument. The, the only reason why I could argue to say VAR should take a look here is because maybe there was a red card foul, but mm, I don't know. No, I don't think that was necessarily the case. Just of yeah, I, that's not an argument that I would. I mean, for me, it's it's a very. I think we can see that it's a very gray zone because um, I've seen obviously goals taken off over the last few seasons where deep in a build-up play, at some point, somebody may have been fouled. Um, I. I mean, Dortmund's last cup tie it's, against Paderborn is probably the best example, but there yeah, was a counterattack that uh, directly started no from VAR. from Paslak's fall, basically. Yeah, no, that's true. Sorry, no, there yes. was VR. No, yes, that was VR. Sorry. Um, no, it it's it's a gray area, but again, the key thing here is what you talked about before, uh, defensively, and and I was thinking about this um, after the game because. At the beginning of the season, and also for most stretches of last season, poor defending wasn't really a major issue. Um, you know, the the openness in defense, the gaps between midfield and backline, the vulnerability again through set pieces, those just kind of crept in uh, over the last couple of months that weren't really there. I mean, we were saying rightfully so, rightfully so that Akanji was having an amazing season and he, he's probably still the best defender they have right now. Consistency wise, which is kind of sad uh, because he's off. Everyone is completely off except Jaden Sancho. And it, I kind of realized like, well, he's in form. The entire rest of the squad is off. I don't think I want that trade anymore. Thank you. Can you take it back? Can we have Sancho who doesn't score anymore, but the rest of the team remembers how to play? So it's just, yeah. And, and that to me is coaching. Having, being disjointed between midfield and backline, that's a coaching problem. Um, because that's stuff you work on in training. And obviously there's an issue there. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. I mean, also... Um, the, the the problem is Dortmund right now are trying to do things differently than they did under Favre and uh, I think Mats Hummel said it after the game in an interview where he said that they are working very hard for it to play more aggressively up front on the training ground but uh, sort of promised that things will turn around uh, because they are working hard for it on the training ground Uh, first of all, um, that remains to be seen. Second of all, they don't have much time to turn things around because uh, if they do in like two months, the season will be over. So um, that's another thing. But um, I I must honestly say the one thing I liked about Lucien Favre's uh, idea of football is the low block defense. And uh, that's not because I'm the biggest low block defense fan. Um, that's more because um, <laughs> you don't have that much pace at the back, especially due to Matsumilt. So I'm a bit more comfortable with this backline uh, if they're further back as is so they don't have to track back. And uh, these uh, gaps like the, the first Bibu chance just don't happen. 
um, because even average Bundesliga sides will absolutely kill you if this happens. So, um, yeah, I mean, we have talked a lot about the poor goalkeeping and we'll probably do this again uh, this time around. But, uh, you know, there was a time where, despite it all, uh, Dortmund and Roman Bürki still had the most clean sheets after, like, I don't know, 10 or 12 match days or something like that. Um, so I think you're right. Uh, Dortmund's uh, defensive woes are only getting worse at this point, it feels like. And uh, the, uh, you know, almost obligatory goalkeeping error surely does not help. I mean, if we look at the uh, 2-1 that uh, Bebu then scored, um, it, it was obviously a set piece. <laughs> what, what else would be happening? And... Uh, yeah, Marvin hits maybe a bit unlucky that uh, his punch clearance hit the uh, striker right in front of him. But uh, I personally think is that he should have attempted to catch it. Now, uh, you can clearly see that Marvin hits subscribes to the Roman Weidenfeller school of punching the ball away. But uh, Matthias, uh, you also need to see that there is a guy right in front of you. I know it's all a split second decision and it's probably more your subconscious making that decision than, you know, an active uh conscious thought of uh, whatever um but nevertheless um that's not only unlucky i think that's also a bit of a lack, lack of skill there well yeah i mean in situations like that you know you're 20 years of goalkeeping i mean he's 33 years old uh he's a more veteran keeper than Roman Bürki, uh, both in age and i believe also just general matches played um and so his like your automatisms <laughs> kind of kind of kick in. But that's where you can see it's kind of like the automatisms of someone player playing in the low, low, lower leagues, sorry, versus Messi. It's a different level. And this, to me, when situations like that occur where it's not a long premeditated thought process, even though as a keeper, you do kind of know if the ball is coming in here, I'm punching or catching – um, and he just defaulted to his default reaction shows that he's just not that good of a keeper anymore. I mean, he was decent for Augsburg when he was a starter there. Um, he's a decent backup, but he's not a good keeper. Uh, I have zero confidence with him between the sticks, so to speak. Uh, none whatsoever. And uh, at least with Buki, I do some. Uh, this season, a little bit less, but usual seasons, I have confidence in him. Uh, hits just no, mm -mm. not, not a, not, not an option for me. The somebody, I forget who tweeted and I retweeted it. So I should remember who said, well, what about Unbehauen? You know, why not throw him in there at this point? And, and I'll be honest, why not? I mean, because, you know, Bukki's injured. I don't know if he's going to be back now soon. Hits just no, I'm sorry. No. So you may as well put the kid in there and just see what happens. Your backline's already lost in confidence, so they're not going <laughs> to lose confidence just because there's a young keeper in goal. Uh, they're bereft of confidence in general. Um, so it might be time to do that. I do not see them doing it personally. I, I honestly um, don't know because I don't know the, the performance level of Unbehauen, so I just can't really add anything to that because... I mean, Marvin hits, yes. It was arguably a mistake, but he also did save Dortmund's bacon a couple of times in this game. So um, there are obviously trade-offs you make, but um, yeah, it's uh, it's frustrating, sure. But uh, I don't know if Luca Unbehorn right now is the answer to the solution. It's probably just the situation where Dortmund just have no. to. Like, yeah, you just got to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you just—it's it, kind of like the the season of the two Peters. You just kind of got to get through it. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of the episode you know? title. <laughs> yeah, just just kind of get through it. <laughs> it's like it's but, just, like with, with Champions League. Yeah, but uh, um, no, the uh, the uh, statistic uh, that I wrote down, uh, which is uh, obviously uh, more of a coincidence than anything else, but uh, still shocked me is that uh, Hoffenheim had as many yellow cards as Dortmund had shots. Namely seven. <laughs> so um, the uh, uh, the uh, biggest uh, problem I find next to the defensive woes that Dortmund had in this match is actually um, creating chances for themselves. And uh, I've uh, went to fbref.com yet again and looked at the match logs and it was a season low of nine shot creating actions 
um, which is not great. The previous low was 17 and the average is 24.85. So um, this is very, very far below average and I'm not sure if that's uh, a mishap in uh, statistics gathering or whether Dortmund is so poor in creating chances. Uh, minus obviously the refereeing that took away from this um but uh yeah it's uh sadly uh a bit annoying now uh i wanted to add to the uh whole uh harland being wrestled to the ground situation that jude bellingham indeed is actually eligible and allowed to score from there so um you know even with all that said, uh, he still could have pulled the trigger, but the uh, defender was quicker, so Jude Bellingham needs to improve a little, but I'm sure he will, and uh, learn from that. Um, it's not just that. I mean, there were a few situations, even in this match, but we know about a few other matches where, I mean, I caught myself yelling at the TV, she's doch endlich. <laughs> you know, it's like, just shoot, just take the shot. Um, two players that are notorious for not just taking the shots, are Sancho and Brandt. Uh, Royce, if he has an opening, he'll take the shot. Holland will take the shot from wherever he is. Um, but, uh, you know, Brandt, Tahut, um, Sancho, they're more assisters than scores. I mean, I know Sancho scored, but like they're in a situation where it's like, just take the damn shot, you know, because you have Holland there. If the keeper spills it, comes at an awkward angle, you have the ultimate striker there. So just take the damn shot. And I know there are certain commentators, English commentators, who like to complain, don't want to make it pretty and walk the ball into the net. Um, and to a degree, you know, they're probably more under, you know, with Favre, they were a little bit more like, they were definitely like that with Tuchel. But that's okay. You want to have the high percentage scoring opportunities. But that's not what this even is. This is just... Just take the damn shot. You know, I mean, don't look for a pass. And that's where it comes to where I I think I even I, I tweeted it. I said, bereft of confidence. There's just no better way to, um, I guess, characterize this team right now is they are bereft of confidence. And that's a big issue. And then you throw on top of that, I believe, coaching issues. And nothing against Idin Tezic. He, he, he was given... Not a poison chalice, but a very difficult job that's way beyond his skill set at this point in his career. And you can kind of see it. You know, he likes aggression and being on the front foot, but then the defense is completely in shambles. You know, if you look at Pitastuga, he was all about defensive solidity and maybe you'll get a goal. Um, you know, the, with Tezic, it's kind of the other way. I do believe Favre was a significantly more balanced coach when it comes to his approach. Um, and I, how do I say this? I think under Favre, Dortmund probably wouldn't have beaten Leipzig, but they wouldn't have lost some of the matches they have lost since, uh, just because of his tactical style. And even though Hummels is saying, you know, we're, we're doing things in training, we're trying things in training. Once that, that whistle goes, like that, that auto reflex starts and <laughs> once you the can't opponent just... punches you in the face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's the Mike Tyson thing. Everyone has a plan until someone punches you in the face. And that's really what it is. You revert back to muscle memory and everything you learned under Favre. But the problem is now you're also trying to do something completely different in yeah. many aspects. There's a nice and so it saying just comes out disjointed. There's a nice saying. It's, uh, under pressure, you become your habits. And that's utterly what we're seeing with Dortmund these days, um, that they're sort of forgetting what they're doing, really, and it just looks disjointed. Um, so, yeah, obviously, it's very annoying. Um, the good thing, I guess, is that Dortmund managed to salvage a point, and uh, I think um, that goal was very enjoyable because the uh, Hoffenheim player was obviously on the ground and Haaland uh, took advantage of that um, probably not really knowing that there was a guy on the ground and he just uh, scored it and after that there was a little brawl, a little tussle um, but I think that's just karma for Kevin Vogt's audacity to wrestle Haaland to the ground earlier, so uh, utterly deserved and I personally just uh, really enjoyed it uh, so yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. Hoffenheim can Hoffenheim can just fuck right off <laughs> with that bullshit. I mean, 
first of all, they had possession when their player was down yeah. and didn't play it out right away. Yeah, play it out and, instead of to Haaland. And, <laughs> and I'll be honest, my personal opinion is, unless the referee blows the whistle, you fucking play. This this whole thing about fair play, I kind of get it to a degree. But Hoffenheim, you could have played it out and you chose not to. And just because you screwed up and the, uh, let's call him the second best striker by Lewandowski in the Bundesliga in that moment, um, decided to, you know, do what he's paid to do, you have no right to get up in his face and give him shit. Aside from the fact that you're Hoffenheim and you should be hated every moment of every day anyway, uh, as a club, not the town, blah, 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 blah. Um, then it, it just, it aggravated me so much. I'm like, you know what? You guys sit down. You had, you could have played it out and you didn't. And so, yeah, to a degree, there is karma for the folk thing. And there's just karma because it's Hoffenheim and they deserve that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the only annoying part really is, uh, is that uh, the goal came in the 81st minute, I think. But the problem is uh, then in the ensuing, uh, I think, nine minutes or ten minutes plus four minutes of injury time is that Dortmund did not uh, get another shot off. And I think um, especially after bringing on Dahoud and uh, Mukoko and who else, I think uh, Royce obviously for Giorena from the bench and Nico Schulz uh, on the left side. Uh, I, and obviously uh, we should mention that that uh, Tessic brought on Schulz to put Guerrero more centrally which i think is a tactical ploy you can apply in you know the 70th minute when you're chasing the game um i just think that dortmund must do way better in uh, creating at least one more chance especially when you find the equalizer and have momentum on your side a little bit and especially after you get uh you know fired up a little from that uh, tussle i think that uh dortmund need to do much better in at least you know, doing something, creating a chance. But uh, yeah, it just wasn't enough. Uh, let's just put it this way. And uh, with that, Matthias, I think we can conclude um, the uh, Hoffenheim segment and move over to the Champions League. And uh, without any further ado, here is my interview with uh, Jose Perez. He's a writer for Between the Post and Managing Madrid, and now he joins me to discuss the Champions League tie against Sevilla. Hello, Jose Perez. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Hello, Stefan. Uh, thanks for having me here. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm always happy to be here and discuss a bit about La, about La Liga teams. So I'm not sure I'd call my I wouldn't call myself a La Liga expert, but for my Managing Madrid job, I have to write every week about Real Madrid's opponents. So that gives me a pretty decent working knowledge of every team in the league. Because I haven't uh, talked about Sevilla yet at all, um, let's just uh, give a quick rundown. So they are managed by Julian Lopetegui, who is obviously a pretty well-known coach uh, in the... In La Liga, they're doing fairly well. They have uh, 14 wins, 3 draws, 5 losses. They score an average 1.45 goals per game and concede 0.73 goals per game if you compare that to Dortmund's uh, 1.95 goals per game, but uh, 1.48 goals against per game. Uh, you can see where Sevilla's strengths lie and where not um, their best scorers in our competitions are. Uh, Yusuf and Naziri, who are 17 goals right now, and their best uh, is this provider is uh, John Jordan, and obviously, uh, what makes Sevilla so strong right now is uh, their confidence because uh, they have won their last five games in La Liga and they have won nine in a row in all competitions, including a 2 0 win against Barcelona a week or two weeks ago. Um, so, with that all being said, uh, Sevilla is the informed team. Uh, Jose, when we recorded uh, the show after the uh, draw for the round of 16, uh, I think pretty much everyone said that this is a favorable draw to Dortmund in the sense that uh, they could have gotten a, a much worse opponent. I think players said it was a 50-50 matchup, but uh, now in February, I would say uh, Sevilla are odds on favorite. Um, what 
makes Sevilla a team that's in the top four right now in uh, La Liga, which obviously is a strong league and, and makes them such a such a winning side at this moment. Yes, so, yes. so right now, so last year, Sevilla had uh, 70 points in, in La Liga. They are on track to either have uh, matched that amount of points or exceeded. So they're playing even better than last year. And I kind of agree with you that when I first heard of the matchup, I also saw it as kind of a 50-50 thing uh, because Sevilla are actually a pretty complete team. The reason they are fourth place is that uh, so the the play style is basically your typical Spanish uh, possession 4-3-3. And so they are pretty good on the ball playing uh, playing out of the back, but they are also a very complete team defensively, as you notice from uh, from their goals against uh, yeah, 0.73 is pretty good. Yes, so they are the second best defense in the league after Atletico. Uh, and the thing is that they are a very complete defensive structure. They are good at pressing high, but they can also defend deep if needed. The biggest issue that Sevilla has been having over the last year, year and a half, was their offense that didn't look too good, that didn't look great. It was kind of stale. They struggled a lot to break down, say, deeper blocks. They lack speed. Uh, and the thing, unluckily for Dortmund, is that in the last two months, they've kind of fixed their offensive issues. So they are actually scoring more. The quality of the chances they are created has increased. And there are two main reasons for that. One is, as you mentioned, their current top scorer, Yusuf Nesidi, 23 years old. He is finally kind of making the leap. So now he's going like into an elite striker level and He's been scoring week in, week out right now. And the other thing that I think is giving them a boost to their attack is that over the winter transfer window, they made the signing of uh, Alejandro Papu Gomez from Atalanta, who is basically in the last five years, one of the 10 best creative players in Europe. Uh, he's a bit old, yes, but that also gives them a boost to their attack. So right now, Sevilla kind of fixed their main weakness, which was the offense. So they were already strong, and now they're even stronger, which is why they've been winning so many games in a row. So balance and structure is a thing you already told me before we started recording. Now, uh, Gomez obviously um, plays on the uh, left forward side in that 4-3-3. If you talk about N Nasiri, uh what I find interesting, fbref.com has this new um, scouting report graphic where uh, it shows where um, players rank against uh, their uh, counterparts in, in uh, you know the same position and against forwards when it comes to goals. Uh, he is in the top 92 percentile of, uh, of strikers right now because he's scoring 0.78 goals per 90 which is uh, obviously an insane statistic. So, um, yeah, if you haven't heard of the uh, Moroccan yet, uh, I don't know, A, what you're doing, and B, uh, you will hear from him <laughs> by the latest during this tie because uh, I think uh, saying that he is uh, CVS talisman is uh, probably not an overstatement. So, um, yeah, I'm... Uh, well, excited is probably the the wrong word to say it, but uh, it's it's going to be a very cracking matchup, especially for the Dortmund defense right now, which is doing a lot of things, but not a lot of things right. So um, you've uh, obviously have some insight into the structure of a team if you are riding for between the posts, because we all know um, the uh, pass maps they are posting on on Twitter of pretty much every game uh, and uh, we have uh, talked about it uh, in context of the Freiburg game if I'm not mistaken where Dortmund had the quote-unquote you of death as I think Pep Guardiola introduced that term to the Bundesliga a couple of years ago um, when uh, you are forced to just pass it around your center backs and your fullbacks but just cannot make any connections to your midfield players um, Sevilla, you are saying, on the other hand, uh, has figured this out a bit better. Um, what makes him so strong in possession? Uh, why is their passing structure so well balanced? And why are they finding uh, passing outlets from uh, several different angles into, I guess, footballing situations? Yes. So Sevilla, I would say, when it comes to playing out of the back, they are 
one of the strongest, most mature teams in Spain. And I would say that makes them one of the most mature also at playing from the back in all of Europe. And I think uh, what really uh, makes them stand out is that Julian Lopetegui, the coach, tends to be a guy who likes to pro- move the ball forward through like diagonal passes. So uh, so you often, you often have these situations where Sevilla are being pressed and they will be pressed by Dortmund in this game. And what they will likely do is that say Dortmund is pressing uh, the left, the, the left back, and he will try to switch play all the other way to the right back or the right winger. Um, or you try to press one of the midfielders, say Rakitic, he'll try to make the switch all, all the way to, to, the, to the other side. And that's the thing is that the entire, there are players who are particularly good at making that switch of play, like Joan Jordan, who is kind of the main uh, creative midfielder I- in the team. Uh, but all of the team is actually pretty good at making that those diagonal passes. And that's how they like to move forward. That's Sevilla's main strategy to move forward. Things are going to change a bit more with Papu Gomez because now Sevilla don't only move uh, move the ball forward through those diagonal passes. They also move the ball forward because Papu tends to uh, move a bit deeper and offer himself as a passing option. He's a very mobile player. So those are Sevilla's two main mechanisms to get the ball forward, which is, again, something they're really good at. Yeah, if Yellow Wolper listeners right now are showing some sort of allergic reaction because uh, someone is talking about the strategy and the game plan um, and you haven't heard of something like this in, in a while, please don't blame me. It's not my fault. It's Dortmund's fault. <laughs> <laughs> because, yeah, it's 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 really nice to just sit back for a second and listen to someone explain uh, a, an attacking mechanism that the team has. Because if you ask me about Dortmund's mechanisms right now and their uh, automatisms that and and their ways of attack, I don't really have one uh, any anything intricate to to tell you. I can tell you about maybe Hummels punting the ball forward and uh, stuff like that, but uh, it's it's not really uh, cohesive at the moment. So obviously, um, mm-hmm. I do know that. Uh, what we in Germany call the Spielverlagerung, the switch of play, is uh, something that Dortmund do not deal well with and uh, haven't done so in a while. And I think most famously they are punished in this sort of fashion very often by Bayern Munich because they also excel in uh, the switch of play with the uh, long diagonal balls, uh, say from Alaba to Robben most historically, I guess. Um, there are uh, a couple of question marks behind four players in the Sevilla team. It's uh, Jesus Navas, uh, Marcos Acunca? Acunca? I don't know. Uh, Lucas Ocampos. Acuna. Acuna. Okay, yeah. Yeah, Makes sense. Acuna. Uh, Marcos Acuna, Lucas Ocampos, and Oscar Rodriguez. Um, What can you tell me about these players? How uh, important are they for Sevilla? And are they uh, really doubtful? Or is this just something someone wrote down and I have not really, uh, I'm not really correct about it? No, to my information, that is that is correct. And it's kind of funny because you look at, say, Dortmund's injury list right now and you think they are doing worse. Uh, but I would argue that Sevilla's uh, injuries, even though they are fewer, are kind of more meaningful. Uh, all of those, like three players there, Navas, uh, Marcos Acuña and Lucas Ocampos, um, are starters uh, are starters in the team and they're very important in kind of the mechanisms that I described before. So I told you, they like to send um, like diagonal balls to the players in the wings. Those three that I mentioned are the players on the wings. (laughs) So um, that will make life a bit harder for Sevilla. Also, Jesus Nav, the two biggest creators in Sevilla are Joan Jordan, a midfielder, that makes sense. But then uh, Jesus Navas uh, is also uh, the right back is also being very creative uh, from that position and Sevilla lose a lot uh, when they don't have him there so that's going to hurt Marcos Acuña is also being productive as a left back and he's pretty strong defensively uh, they're going to miss that and Lucas Ocampos who is usually plays uh, right wing the right winger role he tends to be like Sevilla's attack without him lacks speed. He's kind of the speedy dribbler guy. Without him, they lose that. So that's going to be uh, another. So all of those absences, I would say, hurt Sevilla a lot because the best way to exploit Dortmund's uh, structural weaknesses 
was to get a pass to all of these players and they, yeah, and they will not be there. So, and their substitutes um, are not poor, but certainly will not be on the same level uh, as the starters. Yeah, so you, that you, will definitely hurt. For for uh, Navas, I think uh, Vidal will play, right? And on the left for uh, Acuna, is it uh, Rekic? And then uh, I guess... Sousa will replace Ocampos. Is is this how it's going to look in that 4-3-3 setup? Exactly. And all of those options. So Vidal will actually be more or less have a similar behavior to Navas, just less good. Uh, Karim Rekic will be a lot more conservative. He's kind of more of a, he was originally a center back. So he's going to be kind of a very conservative left back player. And then Suso is actually a very creative right winger. But he's different. Like Ocampos is more kind of the running kind of winger, the guy who tries to run behind defenses. Suso is not that. He's more like the creative kind of winger that tries to make to make a good pass or a good cross. Are these players likely to be fit for the return leg? That I haven't checked actually. Uh, I think Navas in particular was for this one. He was. He, there's a good chance he'll be recovered for the next leg. The other two, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, so far they are only marked doubtful. I don't know if uh, if there's been an update yet that they're uh, definitely in or definitely out. So I guess we'll have to uh, see about that. So um, you you have talked about severe structural uh, you have talked about severe structural strengths. Uh, now, if Dortmund do want to hurt Sevilla, how would they do that? So the interesting thing is that. In La Liga, I would say defensively, Sevilla are one of the teams with the fewest weaknesses. Like they are good at when they have to press high. They are good at defending counterattacks. They are good when they have to sit back and wait for the opponent to try to get them. Uh, they are the thing is that in La Liga, you don't have a counterattack with the talent uh, with Dortmund's attacking talent. You yeah, there's. There, there's not a combination of players like what, like, uh, like Oland, like Royce, like Reina, uh, and Sancho. It's that's kind of, yeah, that's a quality of counterattack that Sevilla doesn't really face in La Liga, and it will be interesting to because I, the way I see it, I think the best, um, the best way to damage them is kind of on on the counterattack. Uh, that being said, uh, the well, the other thing is that on the I think. Without abusing the U shape that we talked about, <laughs> it the most likely way to attack Sevilla in this game will be on the wings, mostly because their starting fullbacks are will not be there. So the the two ones who are there will be weak, weaker defensively. And also Ocampos is not just a good winger; he's also good defensively. While the guys who are going to be the wingers who are going to be there, Suso and Papu Gomez. Uh, will not be as disciplined defensively, so that that's where that's where Dortmund can take advantage of, like trying to create good counterattacks on the wings to take advantage, uh, taking advantage of that Sevilla weakness at the moment because of their absences. All right, I'm uh, very intrigued to see how Dortmund actually uh, do that. Um, I I really do wonder um, if uh, this will be over after the first leg. Um, my question to you is, um, how have Sevilla fared so far in the Champions League? I mean, uh, they have uh, finished Group E with as many points as Dortmund. They had uh, 13 points. Uh, they are only one up by Chelsea, who had uh, 14. And obviously, Rennes and Krasnodar were the whipping boys of that group. So uh, I assume they've uh, played fairly well. But um, is there a notable difference between their... La Liga performance and their Champions League performance so far. Uh, some teams, and especially mature teams and uh, experienced Champions League sides, uh, alter their style a little bit. Um, is this something you notice about Sevilla as well? Because uh, I, I do recall when Dortmund did play against Sevilla many, many years ago in the Europa League, they were a very uh, mature team. Uh, they were full of shithousery and time-wasting. And... Uh, very clinical as well. Um, so what kind of approach do you think Lopetegui will uh, will take just tactically from the approach? Will it be a more conservative one? Uh, how, how risky do you think he'll approach this? 
he won't change what he does. He's going to face this game the way he faces it. Like, he's going to make some adjustments, but in terms of philosophy, uh, Sevilla will be as aggressive and pressing as they usually are. That I know That I know for sure. Uh, and in terms, and it's interesting, uh, 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 the question about how would they face in Champions League, because that is kind of where Sevilla are as a club at the moment. They are, of course, like one of the dominant teams in Europa League, and they've wanted to make for years at this point this switch in becoming like a mainstay in Champions League, which is what they're trying to get. They're trying to get there doesn't uh, doesn't always quite work. And that's the thing. They don't have as much experience in Champions League knockouts. Uh, uh, yeah, they, they really don't have that experience. But if we go by, for example, how well they competed in Europa League last season, uh, I expect their their ability to compete like just and by that I mean like the mental toughness I expect that will port over to Champions League knockouts they for example back in Europa League they had to deal with a very tough uh, uh, knockout against Manchester United where they were outplayed at times and they managed to survive like even when they were not playing well when the opponent was dominating they managed to defend well and not and they did not concede goals so it's So that's the other thing that I that I see here against Dortmund. It's like not only does Sevilla have a lot more tactical structure than Dortmund right now, I think from a mindset perspective, they they are going to be just more switched on. This is a team that when it comes to knockout tournaments is doing quite well, oh, just like they did against Barca in the, uh, in the Copa del Rey. So that is something they seem to, to be doing quite well there. And Dortmund right now, They are more lost tactically, but also probably psychologically. I have nothing to counter that. So uh, all I can ask is uh, you to give a prediction for the first leg and the second leg. And uh, please uh, tell our listeners uh, how to find you on, on Twitter and your work. Yes. Uh, so hmm, predictions. I'm always bad. Like I can tell you how the match go is going to go by tactically, but uh, predictions. I'm <laughs> always bad at that. So this. Mm, hmm, hmm, hmm. So I am still going to give this tie to Sevilla. Uh, I think from a talent perspective, Sevilla are not more talented than Dortmund, but because of the mental and the tactical edge that I think they have right now. I still think they make it through. Uh, it's going to be, it's not, at least from Sevilla's perspective, I don't see them scoring too much goals. So um, it for me, it can pro it's probably going to be, say, a 2-1 affair, say, if they pass, like 2-1 affair, one leg, then the next leg, let's say, 1-1. Like, it's something like that. Nothing with two, nothing that's too high scoring. Like, Sevilla doesn't really do high scoring games, to be honest. <laughs> well, uh, Dortmund do high conceding sometimes, so uh, we'll see about that. But uh, yeah, please again uh, tell our listeners uh, where to find you on uh, Twitter and your work. Yes, absolutely. So uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter at uh, JC Perez, P-E-R-E-C. So JC Perez underscore That's a, that's where I am on Twitter and all and always feel free to check the content that we do at managingmadrid.com uh, where I get to write every week like the opposition basically the opposition analysis who who Real Madrid is playing in the league uh, and also check between the post.net where we where we not only have the nice pass maps but we accompany those pass maps with the entire analysis of of games. We give you the tactical story of the game with the nice pass maps. So there you go. That's where you'll find me. Yes. And yes, thanks for having me, Stefan. And it's not, as I said, it's always nice to be able to talk about La Liga teams. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming on and uh, spending some time talking about this tie. I, I, I uh, feared this uh, little interview is going to be more interesting than the game itself for the Dortmund perspective. But uh, either way, thank you for coming on. All right, Matthias, and now it's time to talk about the uh, Borussia Dortmund's perspective for Wednesday's game. What are you expecting from Dortmund here? Because uh, we've talked 
about it plenty of times in the Hoffenheim segment. Uh, their defensive goals are very great right now. Um, how do you think they will try to adjust their behavior to be a more mature Champions League side and do what's required and not, you know, be gung-ho and get punished for, for mistakes? Well, you know, as an Inter fan, um, I'm not a Sevilla fan. Because <laughs> I remember that Europa League final. And Sevilla, they don't score a ton of goals. Um, but they also don't concede a lot of goals. Uh, the only team that concedes less goals than them is Atletico. Uh, but Atletico also outscores them, which is just insane. Uh, so what that tells me is um, Dortmund are going to face a their veteran side. A uh, high-quality side that is going to be compact, that's going to press when they need to, and that will take their chances when they get them, be that on the break, be that from set pieces. Um, the bad thing for Dortmund is that those are all Dortmund weaknesses. So, um, it, uh, you know, it's uh, I'm not overly confident in this one. Um that being said, you know, Sevilla had a very, um, let's say, lackluster performance against last place Huesca, or Huesca. I don't actually know how to pronounce that. Um, you know, it wouldn't be the worst thing if Dortmund don't progress in the Champions League right now. <laughs> um, Sevilla, like you said, when the draw was made, I'm like, oh, okay, you know, that's doable. Now I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, at least they won't lose by 10 goals on aggregate. At least it's not like Barcelona playing against PSG. <laughs> um, so I, it's going to be very difficult for Dortmund. I'll be honest. I, I don't have confidence in Dortmund winning either match, to be honest. Um, and I don't even know who they're going to field right now because so many spots are, are a little bit open. I Doubt Togan Azad is ready yet? No, nope, I don't he's know. Not. I mean, I've, he's not. I mean, he's um, the only one to return. Yeah. So, you know, I could see that slotting in there. It's, oh, it's going to be tough. You want more combative players on the pitch, and um, you do not want Gio Reyna. I'm sorry. This is not a Gio Reyna type match. What's another Julian Brandt type match? Sorry. <laughs> uh, not, yeah, no, not Julian Brandt. Um, I personally would obviously you'd, you'd want to start Sancho Holland. You'd want to uh, start uh, Marco Royce. Might not be a bad one to go away from the four two three one and go more to a four three three. Three man midfield. You bring in Dahoot with Bellingham and Delaney, or you could put Chan in there for Delaney or Bellingham. Yeah, Delaney that might way, not be there due to becoming a dad. That's I think. true. That's that's true. One thing. <sighs> Whatever, man. <laughs> I've got I've got three of them. It's not that special. <laughs> um, I'm kidding. kidding. <laughs> Going to play that back no. to your kids one day. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, hey, Stefan, it's the internet. Nothing's permanent, <laughs> um, right? That's how that's how internets work. The interwebs. No, I I personally would like to see a three man midfield um, in central. Uh, you play, okay, fine. You then play Dahoot, Bellingham, and Chan. I think you've got good pressing resistance. You've got good aggression. You've got good movement, uh, good box to box, good defensive positioning. And also, you know, with Chan, you also have someone who knows how to get under people's skin. Um, and then ahead of them with someone like Sancho, with a triumvirate of Sancho, Royce, and Holland, I think that plays more to the strengths. If I'm seeing Brandt out there, if I'm seeing Gio Reyna out there, um, God forbid Matteo Moray, I just, ugh, I, I, I really worry. I think if they shift a little bit on how they approach it, also their formation, um, who knows, there could be a surprise. But that's really the only way I can see taking out players like Brandt and Reyna who are not uh, up for a fight. And putting in players that more are is to just shift your formation a bit. Yeah, it's also not that stupid because if you also apply a four-three-three, so uh, you, I, th I don't, I don't know, I don't know if the four-two-three-one system really works that well against a Sevilla team, especially the way Dortmund. They'd mark you out. Yeah, exactly. They'd mark out the ten. So, um, yeah, I'm. 
I think that's a good idea. Um, so uh, I, I have no complaints. I think that's a solid lineup, especially if it's uh, John Dahoud and Bellingham in midfield. I think you can work with that. Um, it's obviously nothing that Dortmund have uh, trained or played a lot, but uh, I think if I were the coach, I'd probably draw something similar up because it's the away leg um, and you really do not need to try and, and risk much, I think. You just need to focus on not conceding too many goals. Um, so it's not like Dortmund need to go there and try to win 3 nothing. So <laughs> that's something you can save for the <laughs> return leg. Like, if there is one, who knows, uh, with the uh, pandemic going on and, uh, you know, maybe uh, in a different stadium. Who knows? Um, but for now, uh, this is sort of what we have to discuss. Um, Matthias, since uh, this show is obviously already getting a bit longer, um, I don't know if there's anything else you need to say about this game. Uh, do you just want to leave a prediction and... Uh, I'll ask you questions about uh, Dortmund's next coach. How about that? Sure, sure. I I think Sevilla are going to win this one 1-0. All right. I am less optimistic. I think that uh, Dortmund will try to be more uh, defensive-minded, but it's still not going to work out. So I think it's going to be a 3-1 win for Sevilla. Um, yeah. Uh, so that all being said, Matthias, you said earlier we just gotta get through it uh <laughs> and then marco rosa will take over uh we obviously had a whole emergency podcast yesterday which is why uh this uh, episode will drop so late um but matthias uh since you weren't there yesterday and i still would like to hear your opinion about it uh what was your initial reaction you already said that you feel better since yesterday uh why because I think Dortmund got the best quality coach they could get. Um, and that's not like a best available because he's technically not available. It's because he's the best coach that they can get. You know, I mean, um, Nagelsmann, I'll be honest, I don't want him at Dortmund. I find him just, I just don't like the guy. Um, then, you know, Ten Hag was mentioned a lot of times. I have some Dutch friends who said, yeah, I don't think you want Ten Hag. Um, so, but even beyond Ten Hag, Marco Rose is perfect. He is perfect. He's from the Klopp school of thought. He is a former Mainz coach, I believe also player. Um, you know, yeah, he went through RB Salzburg. You know, everybody has that in their lives. You know, everyone goes through that phase, you know, they date someone they don't really, you know, whatever. Um, but it, but it still, it taught him a lot about young player development, uh, pressing and so on. And then he goes to Gladbach and really does a lot with a team. He overperformed. He brought, made them overperform. Yes, they have some very good players, but Marco Rosa has been able to do a lot. He's been transformative with that side. And I believe he can have that same club effect, maybe, you know, Tuchel-ish effect, but that club effect with this side and with this club, you know, he's not quite as vocal or anything like that on the sidelines. He's a little bit more subdued and that's fine, but that's not really what it's about. Um, I just, I just feel like his style of football, his demeanor, the way he also acts, I think it just fits really well with Dortmund and with Borussia Dortmund and with the people that he will be answering to. Now, whether or not that's Michael Zorc anymore at that point, I, you know, I don't honestly know if he's actually going to retire at the end of the season. We'll see. But with Watzke and Kehl and Zama and Raupa, I think it fits very, very well. Um, and then with the squad, there's going to be a lot of changes depending on where Dortmund finish the season. But even with bigger changes, I think the he can have a positive effect. And I think ideally he has a positive effect now. And the reason why is because... I know what it's like if you're working for a company and you don't know what the direction is and it seems like it's changing, It's you don't really know what you're working towards, then your morale and the way you dedicate yourself to your work really suffers. And with Dortmund, with the players, they didn't know who's going to come after Terzic. Everybody knew it was not going to be Eden Terzic, so they didn't know the direction. They didn't know the style. They didn't know what the future vision and goal and direction of Borussia Dortmund would be. Now they know that. And ideally, that is the catalyst 
to make them perform better, perform for their jobs, want to play for this coach, um, and and go in that direction. Some people have said, well, you know, now Tezich is a lame duck. Let's be honest. Tezich was a lame duck the moment he took over. Everybody kind of knew it was just interim. So that really doesn't change anything. But I think this gives them a vision, and they know the club is able to attract a high-level coach that a lot of people were after, and that plays a style that is very attractive and interesting. So I I believe it's a brilliant hire for Dalton. It's the best one they could have made, honestly. Ah, nice. Some positivity. Uh, that's that's all nice. Are you a bit uh, concerned about him uh, going through clubs rather quickly? And do you think that uh, he'll be out of Dortmund uh, if uh, he gets a little bit successful? I'm not too worried about that. I mean, Salzburg, it, Salzburg is like Leipzig in the sense of, you know, anything with a, a Red Bull on it. There's no real tradition. There's no meaning. There's no, there's no passion. There's no, oh, I want to be at this club. Dortmund has that. Gladbach has that as well. Um, but, you know, it's a little bit more distant. Dortmund have the bigger profile. So it's the natural step in the evolution. If you look how his contract was structured, you kind of knew something like this could happen. Um, I'm not worried about club hopping in that sense. Um, I mean, where would he go after this? You know, Bayern or, you know, inherit Klopp at Liverpool. But those are then moves aside from Bayern, I, which I don't know if I would see that happening depending on the profile they want. Um, I just don't, I think Nagelsmann's a better fit for Bayern. <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. Um, you know, then you can't really fault him, but I, I'm not worried in two, three years that it's going to be like Tuchel, uh, where everyone's just burnt out from one another. It doesn't seem that that's the case. I mean, Iba really was fighting to keep Marco Rosa at the club and you don't do that with a coach that you don't like, that you have issues with. And that speaks a lot. And you never hear anything from players really being problematic or having issues with him or vice versa from any place he's worked. So I have no concern in that regard. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there will be turmoil in the season, uh, uh, in the next season with the uh, squad changes. But I think that's also a chance because someone sort of do need to rebuild yet again. Um, obviously, uh, they will need that cash from Jaden Sancho because of all the millions they already lost due to pandemic and arguably even the the more money they will lose because I really don't see them qualifying for the Champions League unless the miraculous turnaround that Mats Hummels uh, talking about really happens but uh, I'm honestly not holding my breath there um, I've sort of uh, already come to terms with the fact that Dortmund do not qualify for the Champions League and I think for one season that's fine um it it is what it is. Um, it it can happen to a team like Dortmund. It really should not. But uh, you know, I think there were too many mistakes made at management uh, uh, above the Favres and whatnot. I think Michael Zorc and Watzke did make a couple of transfers. Too many that uh, you know sunk some cash. Uh, so yeah, these chickens are coming home to roost this season. Um, and obviously, with the pandemic, Dortmund are losing their home advantage. Uh, which I think makes a significant difference. Cannot underestimate that. So, um, yeah, I'm excited for Marco Rose and hopefully uh, not too long until he can also enjoy a filled Westfalenstadion again, uh, which obviously, uh, you know, will feel like a new spring for everyone uh, in involved. So um, there are days to look forward to, definitely. Um, I, just, I, I just want a cohesive footballing philosophy again and the coherent team spirit um these are things that i'm missing you know i i joked to my wife today uh that it feels like mark batra who has been gone for i don't know how many years and plays for betty sevilla is uh, still uh identifying more with this team than a lot of dortmund players are so uh <laughs> yeah uh anyway Matthias, I'm glad you're excited. Uh, I'm glad that uh, we have uh, something to talk about in the coming weeks. And uh, I really do wonder if Eden Terzic uh, will, I don't know if he'll adjust, but maybe look a little bit more at what uh, uh, Rose is doing and tries to, to copy that blueprint a little bit in order to uh, develop that club already in that direction. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, Can I add something about Terzic real quick? Yeah, sure. 
Um, I really hope he stays at the club um, because I think he fits to Dortmund. He's an extraordinarily likable guy. Uh, he still has a lot to learn. It would be great if he would stick around, be it in the the um, you know the under twenty threes or the under nineteens, and kind of learn under and with Marco Rosa. I I would love to see that happen because I he's obviously one of us, so to speak, and he's just a really nice guy. I like the guy, uh, and I wish him success. And I really hope he sticks around because I think I think he will benefit from that. Yeah, yeah. So um, <laughs> what I wrote down is actually uh, that uh, the game against Sevilla tomorrow is probably the biggest game of his life. I don't know where his coaching career will take him, but thus far, obviously, Champions League run of 16 undoubtedly is the biggest uh, game of his life as a head coach. And uh, I don't think he has much of a playing career. So, um, <laughs> And the other thing is, Matthias, uh, if Dortmund... Uh, really uh, get shunted by Sevilla and then, uh, you know, do a no-no against Schalke in the Revier Derby on, I think it's Saturday, I haven't actually looked up. Uh, that's how much Derby fever there is these days. Uh, you know, some people are saying that already could be the end for Tessic and then, I don't know, put Enrico Masno or someone else in charge. Uh, so, yeah, no pressure, Aiden. <laughs> I don't even want to say I'm looking forward to the Sevilla match, really, because... Uh, don't want right now a bit dreadful and uh, I'm grateful for anyone who is still listening to us at this point because uh, if I wasn't doing this every every week or thrice a week like this week uh, I probably would tune out a little bit more as well so Matthias um, if you don't have anything further to add I think this is a good place to leave it uh, as always thank you for your time and uh, please tell our listeners how to get in touch with you it's always a pleasure, Stefan. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at Matthiasuk. Very nice. You can find me at Stefan Botsko on Twitter. You can find all of us at Yellow Wallpot on Twitter and Facebook. If you want to subscribe to this podcast in the various means and ways, go to either YouTube or iTunes or Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, etc. If you want to support us financially, like many of you do, and I'm very grateful for it uh, because it really helps Keep the motivation up to churn out this many episodes. Go to patreon.com slash theyellwall for more information. And we shall be back, I think, Thursday already uh, to preview the Schalke game and discuss whatever ensued in Sevilla. Until then, as always, thank you for listening and good 